Good morning, Sun West. Uh, welcome to Church at Home. Uh, I hope you're able to continue to engage wherever you are, whether on your phone or your tablet or on your computer or TV, uh, wherever your summer plans are taking you. And please just keep leaning in and leaning in with others. And if you're able to be in a, a small group and do a live watch party, that's great. You're welcome to join me here on Sundays as well at the church as we do a live uh, watch party together. Um, groups are off and running. It's still not too late to sign up. Uh, so just, I know it's probably mentioned here in the hosting time, but just want to encourage you to, to sign up for a group and engage and don't do life alone, even if, uh, even in a season like this where we are separated, uh, to a greater degree. Uh, we're going to continue on with our series, uh, The Gospel According to Mark, where we have been taking our time going through the book of Mark. And we are getting to Mark chapter 12 and we're getting to the home stretch here. And we're going to cover uh, the entirety of Mark chapter 12 today. And I've entitled um, my sermon, Death and Taxes, which comes from the popular kind of phrase or quotation that in this world nothing can be said to be certain except for death and taxes. And we see that Jesus himself cannot even avoid a confrontation with death and taxes. And we know that death is coming, and that's the journey towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. Uh, but here in Mark chapter 12, he has a uh, conflict uh, a few conflicts with some religious leaders, but one of them is around uh, taxation. Uh, so just to recap really quick, we came out of last week, we talked about the temple and the structure of the temple and the temple system and how Jesus kind of confronted the system. And it was more than just the system that he was confronting. He was re- confronting the religious uh, leaders. Uh, and part of what was happening was there was a lot of activity going on, but the activity was missing uh, the, in- the intent of why Jesus or why God instituted uh, the temple practices in the first place. They missed the entire heart of God in the midst of it. Uh, I don't know how many of you out there have your driver's license, uh, but if you do, you would have taken a driver training course. Uh, you would have done your driver's test, and there's a number of things that they look for when you're doing your driver's test. And one of the uh, you know famous challenges of doing your driver's test is that parallel parking, which is challenging. And I remember my first driver's test, I nailed the parallel parking. No big deal. Uh, but uh, what I failed on was my shoulder checking. And you think, well, shoulder checking, that's like a really easy thing. How do you fail a driver's test based on your shoulder checking? Uh, well, what I would do... What happened a couple times in that driver's test is I would, I would be turning left for, or going left for example, and I would shoulder check on my right. And, which is a ridiculous idea. Uh, but in my mind, I wasn't, I missed the heart of why you would shoulder check. You shoulder check to make sure there's nobody coming so you don't hit somebody. And I just had to tick the box of shoulder checking. And so just meth- robotically, I just looked beside myself, make sure I shoulder checked even though it was in the opposite direction that I was turning. And so we, we see this idea with the religious leaders that they had all this activity going on. They were trying to tick the right boxes and do the right thing. Uh, but Jesus confronts them, confronts the system, and basically says, you've missed the heart of God. You missed the whole reason that he came to earth. Uh, you missed the whole thing that he was trying to do through the people of uh, Israel because Israel was blessed to be a blessing. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to uh, actually, uh, the presence of God was actually supposed to be among them and they were supposed to bring that into the world and instead they set up these systems and kept systems of separation and segregation uh, which was part of the issue that Jesus had in the temple. So, uh, the religious leaders 
that were managing that temple system uh, was a group that is referred to in Scripture uh, as the Sanhedrin. And so you might have come across this word when you looked at uh, looked in the Bible, and you wonder, what does this word even mean? And this was a council. It was a buffer organization between Rome and the Jewish nation and was composed of 71 members who held near-complete freedom in religious matters, although they had restric- restrictions from Rome in political matters. But when it came to the religion of Rome, uh, they were kind of uh, the council that was calling the shots. So chapter 11 ended with the Sanhedrin members asking Jesus where he gets his authority to do such things and to come into the temple and overturn tables and challenge the, uh, the whole system and this, this group, this council saying, you know, what are you doing? And so that leads us into Mark chapter 12. And there's this parable of the tenants, and we won't get into this parable, uh, but really this parable is telling you that throughout history, uh, God has sent prophets and leaders to Israel to try and steer them in the right direction. Uh, but the religious uh, leaders of Israel uh, continued not to listen to the prophetic voices, and they uh, they pushed them away, and in the worst case scenarios, they killed the prophets. And then finally in the parable, it talks about this, this owner of the land, which representing God, sending his son to these tenants that are looking after this vineyard and saying they, they killed the, the people I sent ahead, uh, but now I'm going to send my son. Maybe they'll listen to my son. And they kill the son. And obviously this is a prophetic picture, a parable, uh, that Jesus is the beloved son of God that has come to steer Israel in the right direction. But even now, the religious leaders will not listen to Jesus and they're going to end up killing him. And so this, uh, the leaders are just infuriated with this because they know that Jesus has spoken a parable against them. And so who are these leaders that are being upset by Jesus and what he's saying and what he's doing? Well, the Sanhedrin was made up of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And this helps frame the entire chapter of Mark 12 because Jesus uh, encounters three challenges, three tests, uh, one from the Pharisees, one from the Sadducees, and one from the scribes. And we see that he's almost systematically going from different groups that make up the Sanhedrin council uh, because he is upsetting people all over the place because his ideas and what he is doing uh, was not popular among those religious leaders at the time. So Mark chapter 12, 13 to 17, we have the test of the Pharisees. This is the first test. Jesus clears the temple, uh, gives that uh, challenging parable at the beginning of Mark chapter 12, and then the different council groups are actually coming towards Jesus to test him. And it says, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. And we'll pause right there real quick because the Pharisees and the Herodians did not get along. Just as a bit of a background, the Pharisees are religious teachers and leaders. And we have the Herodians who represent the agenda of Rome. You have the political world, the religious world. And often the Jews were at odds with the Roman authorities because they believed that Rome was oppressing God's people. And, but here we see the Pharisees and the Herodians coming together in unity. Why? Because they have a common enemy. And often it is easy to unite with other people around a common enemy. And, and so there's this false unity, this counterfeit unity that's happening among the people where the Pharisees and Herodians are getting together and they say, we have a common agenda. We both don't like this, uh, this guy who claims to be the Messiah, Jesus. Uh, let's go get him. Let's join forces. 
And so I think this is just a very quick word of warning for us that we need to be very careful about counterfeit unity where we, uh, where we find commonality with other people based on what or who we're against, where I believe the unity that God calls his church to is based on what we are for and what we are all about. And so Jesus had an agenda of what he was for, and the Herodians and the Pharisees come against Jesus because he is what they are united against. And so they hatch up this plan that will either put Jesus in trouble with the Romans or in trouble with the Jewish leaders. And they, they find the scenario, it's going to be a win-win for one of them uh, because they're going to get Jesus in trouble and then, and then have an excuse uh, to uh, put him to trial and hopefully put him to death. So it says they were, uh, they said to some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. It is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. Should we pay them or should we not? So this is a typical question in Jerusalem, uh, because the the Israel the Jewish people were being oppressed by Rome and they were being forced to to pay Roman taxes and this was offensive to them because they believed they were under the authority of God and so they were kind of in this conundrum do we come under the authority of Rome and or do we kind of stand up as the people of God and so they they bring this question to Jesus. Should we pay Roman taxes or not? And the tax being referred to is an imperial poll tax that was instituted in 6 AD. And the amount required to satisfy this tax was one denarius. And one denarius is the average daily wage in Palestine. So uh, whatever you make in a day's worth of work, that was uh, would have been what you know the people were being asked to pay for the imperial tax. And this is what a denarius looked like. It was a silver coin, uh, a Roman coin, and it was bearing the inscription. And it says on the one side of the coin, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And so it talks about uh, Caesar being the divine's son. And on the other side of the coin, uh, it has the inscription high priest. And so the Romans were actually... uh, propagating Caesar as a son of God and as the high priest, as the way to God. And so obviously this is in uh, complete conflict with the claims of who Jesus says he is. So we have this conflict that's happening. Do we pay the taxes of Rome? And the question is obviously intended to trap Jesus in front of the Herodians and the Pharisees, right, to, to, to support the taxation would discredit him in the eyes of the Jewish people. But the refusal to pay the tax would bring the Roman authorities down on him because he would be seen as a rebel or revolutionary. So how is Jesus going to answer the question? If he answers one way, it means trial and death through the religious authorities. If he answers another way, it means trial and death probably through the political authorities. And so the Herodians, Pharisees team up and said, we're going to trap him, we're going to get him, there's no way out. How does he respond? Well, it says, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? See, Jesus sees who they really are. Hypocrisy means, it's a theatrical term that means to be wearing a mask. Jesus exposes them. Um, For those of you who were maybe uh, born in the 90s, 80s, 70s, uh, you would have maybe remembered this, uh, this movement around a certain fashion 
uh, item called the hyper color shirt. Show of hands in your house. How many of you guys ever wore one of these shirts? Uh, to me, these, these shirts are an interesting phenomenon because everybody thought they were cool for a very short season. And so just a little bit of background. The whole idea behind the shirt is that it changes color based on the temperature. Right, So you would buy the shirt and it would actually be a two-colored shirt, but depending on what temperature uh, you were or the room was in, it would change uh, shirts. And so the, uh, the, uh, the color would switch from one to the other. Uh, but unfortunately, this, this whole phase didn't last very long uh, because the unintended consequence of this is when you sweated, when you had sweat, when you had B.O., uh, it would discolor your shirt. And so you had all these junior high boys that thought they were really cool that had pit stains and, and back stains uh, coming out of gym class. And it was just like this huge magnifying glass that exposed them that says, hey, you're a sweaty, pubescent boy. Uh, and so the whole fad and the whole thing uh, didn't last very long. And so <laughs> Jesus comes into this conflict with the Pharisees and, you know, they think, you know, the, they're the certain color. They've, they're fooling everybody. Um, and, uh, you know, the, they're these pious religious leaders. And Jesus sees right through that mask. He sees right through it and sees exactly what's happening and, and knows, uh, what's going on in their hearts. And he exposes them as hypocrites, as people that are presenting something that isn't true to who they are on the inside. And he says to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Bring me this coin for me to look at. You know, what is Jesus up to? And so uh, Jesus doesn't have a coin on him, which is telling. Uh, in fact, any point in the Gospels Jesus deals with money, he never actually has money on him, as a side note. So uh, somebody goes, finds a coin, probably wondering, well, what is Jesus going to do with this coin? And so they bring the coin uh, to Jesus. And, and it says uh, that they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Caesar's picture is on it. His inscription, his image is on the coin. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Other translations just simply say, Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what is God's. This is brilliant. So the coin has Caesar's face on it. It's his coin. It's, his, it's the validation of his own kingship. And so Jesus is saying, if Caesar's, if Caesar made that coin, if his image is on the coin, just give Caesar what's his. The kingdom of God has a different kind of currency and a different kind of economy. Give Caesar what's his and then give God what is God's. And people marveled, were amazed at his response because he was able to navigate this trap and answer in such a way to honor God honor God's authority, but also uh, honor the human authorities that were in place at the time. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God's what is God's. Well, what does it mean to give to God's what is God's? Well, we're going to come back to that a little bit later. So then we have the next test, this test of the Sadducees. So the Sadducees were men of highest standing, but they had limited popular influence. So they were uh, seen very uh, highly in the Jewish uh, among Jewish authorities, that, and they were different than the Pharisees. So the Pharisees believed in angels and demons, the Sadducees did not. The Pharisees had a broader understanding of the Scripture and Revelation. The, the Sadducees only believed in the first five books uh, of the Torah or, or of the Old Testament. Pharisees believed in the afterlife, the Sadducees did not. 
Uh, and so we're not going to dive into this particular section of Mark, uh, these few verses, just in the interest of time. But you'll see if you read it, uh, that it's a debate about the resurrection, about the afterlife. And Jesus, again, answers in a very creative way. Uh, the Sadducees try and trap him with a scenario and say, oh, he's not going to be able to you know, answer clearly. And G- Jesus is able to affirm the afterlife, affirm the resurrection of the dead, uh, and get out of that trap and that test that the Sadducees put him in. And then we get to the third test, the third trap, and that's from the, scri- the scribes. And this one is actually less of a trap and more of a question. Um, and so the, the scribes were the third group represented in the San- Sanhedrin Council, and they were the ones that drew up legal documents. They copied the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, they also devoted themselves to the study of the law and to the t- determination of its applications in Jewish daily life. Uh, and they studied scripture uh, and history. And basically, uh, you know, they were quality control uh, on these elements in the Jewish community. And so we have a scribe that comes to Jesus. Uh, and, and, this, and this is how it starts. In verse 28, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well. And so really quickly, these are words that Mark has been using all along in his gospel to describe discipleship. Moving, acting, coming towards Jesus. And so this this scribe actually came up towards Jesus, that faith is action. It's more than just belief. It's breaking barriers. So he comes to Jesus. And then hearing, and so we see this theme of hearing and seeing. And, and so the scribe is actually being set up in Mark 12 as an example of a disciple. And so we need to be very careful here of not lumping every individual categorically into the same group. Not all Pharisees, not all scribes, not all Sadducees were, def- were necessarily against Jesus. And maybe that's just a word of warning for us today. We, we're living in a volatile time where we are tempted to uh, categorize individuals in large groups and just assume we know their intentions and their heart. And here is an example of a scribe uh, who actually was united and aligned and wanted to pursue Jesus as a disciple, uh, even if uh, people in his community weren't doing that. So the question being asked um, is which is the most important commandment? And it's not just what's the, what's the, um, what's the priority commandment. Uh, this, what he's asking is which is the commandment that supersedes everything and would be applicable to all humanity, including Gentiles? What is the overarching theme of uh, the scriptures? And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that that he answered them well, he asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And this is what is referred to uh, in Judaism as the Shema. And the, the Shema is what is recited three times a day by pious Jews. And it comes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to 5. I love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength. Jesus adds the word mind here. Um, and we see that all is repeated here four times. And, and, this, uh, and the Greek 
preposition is not necessarily with, but it's the Greek word ex, which means out of, from. And so Jesus is saying, with, out of all of your heart, out of all your soul, out of all of your mind, out of all of your strength, love God out of all these places. And so it's not just loving God with these things. There's like this external, observational way that we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love God from these places, outward, inside out. The second is this. So Jesus says, that's the most important commandment. And you recite it three times a day. But it's not just that alone. There's a second part of it. And the second part, Jesus quotes is from Leviticus 19, verse 18. And he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. He links them together intrinsically in a way that you cannot separate them. The scribe asked for one commandment. Jesus says, well, there's actually two. And, you, and they belong together. Love God, love people. Love of the neighbor is the main way that we love God. Likewise, love of God expresses itself most clearly in our love for neighbor. In 1 John, John talks about this in verse 19, uh, in chapter 4. It says, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And so we see this theme throughout the New Testament. Loving God, loving people, they belong together. You can't claim to love God if you don't love people. And loving people is one of the clearest ways of us actually loving God. So Jesus' answer avoids this danger of mysticism, which results in kind of a detached, disembodied love for God that isn't very practical or concrete you know, I'm spiritual. I love God. It doesn't, uh, Jesus' answer doesn't allow us to kind of just camp out there. As well, it actually saves us from the danger of humanism, which acts towards humanity, uh, loving people without any reference to a higher being or authority. The two commandments aren't just blended either into this compromising hybrid. Uh, there is an order. First, we love God. That's the first commandment. Second, we love people. And so this implies that the prerequisite for loving your neighbor well, the way God is intended, is starts with loving God. Whoever does not find the source of love in God will fail to exhibit God's unique love to a neighbor, to the world. Love of God is prior to the love of neighbor and it establishes its possibility. Love for God releases the love of God. Love for God releases the love of God. So these two are intrinsically connected. Love people, or love God, love people. And in fact, even to take it a step forward, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke, Luke gives this commandment in the context of the parable of the Great Samaritan, uh, which Jesus tells, and he, he makes the hero of the story the enemy of the Israelites, of the Jewish people. And in Luke, we learn that loving neighbor is not just you know, those you like or your family or those next to you. Loving neighbor actually is extended to loving your enemies in the kingdom of God. Loving your enemies is loving your neighbor in God's kingdom. So we can say that the test case for loving God is loving your neighbor, if you truly love God. And the test case for loving your neighbor is loving your enemy. That should make us pause and ask this question of who our enemy is and how well do you love them? What do you feel towards them? And this is sobering, but I believe that the, your love 
of God is only to the degree that you love your neighbor. You love God only to the degree that you love your enemy. And so we think about who we, do we love the least. Who are the least of these among us? And how do we show love towards them? And then we hold it up as a mirror and, and then we ask ourselves the question, how do I love God? How much do I love God? It is a sobering question. And the scribe, here's this answer that Jesus gives and he agrees with Jesus' response. He repeats Jesus' response says, I agree with you, Jesus, that uh, you have answered correctly as if he's standing in judgment over Jesus. Uh, and so Jesus and the scribe are on the same page. And then Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And then no one dared to ask him any more questions. That's, this is like the mic drop moment. So he got three tests, three questions. He answers them so creatively and authoritatively and, and finds a third way out of every trap that he is being set up on. And then nobody dared ask him any more questions. He drops the mic. And so loving God and others is how we enter the kingdom of heaven. You are not far from the kingdom of heaven. We have all sorts of ideas of what it means to be in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven is what the term that Matthew uses in his gospel. Um, and we must return to this idea because we never graduate from loving God and loving neighbor. And this is uh, why I think it's the most, part of the reason why it's the most important commandment or the most important two commandments, uh, because it is simple enough for anyone to understand it. It is simple enough for a child to get it and enter the kingdom of heaven. We saw that earlier in Mark, where the kingdom belongs to such as these. Yet it is challenging and complex enough that it will occupy our energy for the entirety of our life. You will never graduate from the first and second greatest commandment. If you don't understand any of the scriptures, if you are confused by this book, and it's a confusing book, and you, and you want to know, what do I do? How do I respond? How do I live as the disciple of Jesus? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor, your enemy, as you love yourself. If you put your energy into living out those two things, you will enter and live in the kingdom of God because you are submitting to the lordship of Jesus in your worship and now you're living it out in the world around you with other people. If you focus on loving God with everything and loving others, you will fulfill the purposes and plans that God has put you on this earth for. So now we're going to circle all the way back to the first testing by the Pharisees and the imperial tax. Remember, Jesus couldn't escape the question of taxes just like we can't. And it says that they brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's because Caesar's image was on the coin. And give to God what is God's. And I asked the question, well, what, what is imprinted with God's image? We talked about how the coin has Caesar's image on it, so it belongs to Caesar. But what has God's image on it? Well, the same Greek word that's being used here for image is the same Greek word that is used in Genesis 1.27, where God created mankind, and it says that he created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We, me, you, are all created in the image of God. Every human being has the fingerprint of God on them. It has the image of God imprinted on them without exception. 
And so when Jesus calls us to love God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all of our strength, and love your neighbor, love your enemy as yourself, it is affirming uh, that we must give to God what is God's. And what does that even mean? Well, it means that it starts with me. If I have been made in the image of God, if God's image is imprinted on me, that necessarily means I belong to God. I am His. And so there is this choice to be made by every human being to give to God what is God's, to respond to God in worship. And that's what worship is. When we talk about loving God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, that is worship language. Romans 12 says to, live, to be living sacrifices, that our lives are an offering to God. Everything we are is given to Him. And so He becomes my sole focus. He becomes... Uh, his, his values become my values. His heart becomes my heart. Everything about Him I try and align myself under because it is all about Him. He is God and I belong to Him. And so there's this response, and the Bible calls this repentance, that we turn towards God. We follow Him. That's discipleship language. Because He is God and we are not, and we belong to Him. And so giving to God what is God's first starts with worship. And it is then and only then that we are able to love others the way that He's called us to love. Because as we worship, we actually receive God's heart. We receive His Spirit. We receive His capacity to love. The Bible calls this agape love, this this deep covenantal type of love whose source is God, that God is love. And so as we worship Him, He gives us His Spirit and His heart and His mind and the capacity to love others well. The capacity to supernaturally love our enemies, those who have hurt us those who have wounded us, those who have said things to us that have been damaging, those who are not like us, those who see things in the exact opposite way we see them, those who cheer for the Rough Riders, those who have a different political agenda, those who have different religious ideas, those who don't have any religious ideas and they are anti-religious. It doesn't matter who they are. If they are a human being, they have been made in God's image and we are called to give to God what is God's. So we start with worshiping Him, and then we, out of that, we start by loving everybody. And that loving isn't just this passive, uh, unconflicting kind of love. It is, it is, it is a battling kind of love. Like Jesus battles for you, for others, and that's what we see on the cross. That this is, that this is a dangerous kind of love. And so will we love others in that kind of dangerous way? Will we be lovers of our enemies? The very people that Jesus loved would be those who would crucify him. Do we have that heart of God? And the only way that we get that heart is through worship. So Sun West, my prayer is that you would give to God's what is God's. And that would start with you. That you would respond to the invitation of Jesus, to his grace and forgiveness, uh, and turn your heart towards Him. Make Him the center of your life. Make Him the focus of your energy, of your strength, of your, of your heart, of your emotions, of your mind, of your intellect. That He would be the foundation of how you think and how you behave. That He would be the source of your worship. And then as you do that, that you would begin to see every human being, no matter who they are or what they've done, as image bearers of God. We would recognize that we we're all broken image bearers that Jesus has come to restore and that we would be co-partners with God as he loves others 
and work with him to bring back to God what belongs to God. May we be that kind of people, that kind of disciple here in Calgary. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, SunWest, we do these going deeper questions at the end of every Sunday, and it's not just for my benefit. I hope it's for yours. It's, it's intended that as you reflect in your own personal time, that they, it would be a source of going deeper with God, uh, that it would help you in, in reflection and prayer as, as it refines you to be a disciple of Jesus. I also hope that it becomes a discussion point in your family, uh, in your church at home, a watch party with other families. Uh, that you would maybe spend time reflecting on these questions and allowing them to shape you. So let's jump over and focus on these uh, questions and what they are for this week. First one is, what do you think of the statement, you only love God to the degree that you love your enemy? Like that is a loaded statement. Uh, how do you feel about that? I, I said it earlier in the sermon, uh, you know, do you agree with it? Does, how does, does it make you uncomfortable? It makes me uncomfortable and I think that's probably a good thing. That we would look at our enemies and think about that question. How does that relate to the degree in which I love God? Secondly, what does it mean for you to love God from all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and strength? And how does this or could this enable you to love your neighbor and even your enemies? What could this mean for loving your enemies? And then this one is a bit of a homework project because Mark 12 ends with the story of a poor widow and we, we didn't have time to get into it, but it's an important story because Mark ends the section uh, with summarizing some of these themes in the story. And so reflect on the ending of Mark 12. And why does he end in this way? What could this poor widow teach us about the first and greatest commandment? How is she an example, a disciple of what Jesus is talking about and what he's inviting us to? How does she become the hero and the picture of what Jesus is trying to describe? So I hope these questions help you to dig deeper, uh, and I hope they, uh, they help you to follow Jesus on the way. Uh, blessing SunWest this week. Hope you're enjoying your summer. Look forward to seeing you in person soon.